Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello. I'm Carl Christopher. And welcome to For the Love of Hip Hop. This is the show where we invite guests to speak to us about what made them fall in love with hip hop. In the show, guests will give us their insights into the key records, places, spaces, people, and objects that shaped and influenced the taste in hip hop culture. In the first season, I'll interview the first generation of hip hop heads, those who directly experienced the hip hop genre storming and forming its way into the cultural landscape. Now, the most prominent music genre across the globe, hip-hop is here to stay, and we, you, love it. The Madonna story in New York, Manhattan to be precise, for the World DJ Championships run by Tommy Boy Records. We were the first English people to ever do it. Um, I think we were up against Filey Jet and Punk. So... He was in a team called the Hot Five, but for whatever reason, they didn't turn up. So it was just it was four of us against him one, and he murdered us. Just him one. For the love of hip hop, stories from the vault of the culture. My first guest in the series is Dave VJ. Dave, for me, is one of the key first generation hip hop tastemakers. As a member of the Mastermind Sound System, Dave was a trailblazer for hip-hop in the UK and the globe. For many years, Dave and Max LX hosted the rap show on KISS FM. The Wednesday rap show was one of London's most influential hip-hop radio shows. It certainly influenced the music I heard and brought as a teenager and adult. Dave is an accomplished broadcaster and author. Beyond the rap show, Dave hosted the early morning breakfast and mixed chart show on KISS 100. He went on to host the lunchtime show on Choice FM. As an entrepreneur, he has run his own clubbing and holiday business in Antigua. He currently presents a mix show on DAB Black Music Station, My Soul. Dave has authored the Masters of the Airwaves book, which documents the history of black music radio for the UK. Masters of the Airwaves, the rise and rise of underground radio, includes contributions from other key black music pioneers, such as Soul to Soul's Jazzy B, radio presenters Trevor Nelson, Norman Jay, and David Rodigan, to name a few. But I know Dave as a friend and influencer who has a deep knowledge and impeccable memory of the progression of hip-hop culture. Dave is calling me from Antigua. Dave, welcome to For the Love of Hip-Hop. Good morning. Wow. That is a mixtape intro. <laughs> Thank you. You've obviously been watching Sway in the Morning or something. <laughs> I do my research. I do my research. <laughs> Sway in the Morning, um, Ebro in the Morning, you know, the Breakfast Club. Uh, we've spoken many times about our loves. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. And thank you so much for asking me to do this. Um, so we're going to talk about hip-hop, hip-hop culture, um, the the building, the storming, the forming, how hip hop sort of blew up or didn't blew up or didn't you know how it came to be and how uh, you definitely somebody I know was in love with hip hop culture. So 
before we start, the first thing I want to ask you before hip hop, what was your musical background? What was your musical taste? This story could go on forever. So let me kind of condense it. So I grew up in the period where it was mainly pop and underground reggae. So my musical pathway was two things. Pop music at home. And then in school, I had a bunch of friends who were into music that I didn't really know anything about. Because my parents, coming from Antigua, there's only two musics at that time, back in those days. So it was only Calypso and Soul. So there's no reggae, no blue beat, no star, none of that. Um, and eventually, when I go to school, my friends you know, introduced me to music that has an MC on it. So an MC is a mic compit or Masters of Ceremony. Now, in the Jamaican culture, the MC, sorry, the DJ is the MC. Let me say that again. In the Jamaican culture, the DJ is the MC. Like a, so a, when they, a toaster, a toaster. Somebody's yeah, toasting it. That's the original name for it. So the DJ, when they say, I want you to DJ on this record, right now you've got DJs who beat juggle, which is with turntables. But back then, DJing meant to rhyme on a record. And in those days, it wasn't even rhyming. And if actually, no, it was rhyming, but it was just hyping up the crowd. There was no formulation of stories. Very, very few. But my first real reggae record was by as you mentioned earlier on, a toaster by the name of Prince Jasbo. I remember when I bought it home, my dad said to me, why are you playing records and talking on it? Because it's not, you know, it's alien to my, my parents' culture. But I always was fascinated by the MCs, how cool they were. I used to listen to Coxon and Fat Man and people like that. I used to go to um, clubs in Grove, as in Lab of Grove. I used to go to uh, Peckham, bouncing ball which eventually became Kisses which was the I believe something to do with the name of how we ended up with the name Kiss um, that was run by Admiral Ken who was a massive massive influence in the London uh, black music club scene and Gordon my now boss at my soul was working there and uh, running Kisses eventually I ended up being a presenter on there and I didn't even know anything about presenting. I didn't even know I was going to be a presenter. I, along with the rest of the crew, um, which was mastermind, so we were what I'd call ghetto celebrities. So we came from the Brent area. I came from Wilson. The rest of them came from Harles and Kensal Rise. And every time we played out, and I'll come back to that later on if you remind me, um, we had a plethora of girls just followed us everywhere. Until, unfortunately, we discovered him. From your sound system days, what was what was the first, would you say, hip-hop record that you heard? Wow. That's a really good question. I don't know. Because I had hip-hop records before I was in the sound system. In fact, my very, very first sound system was on my street, D-Road Posse, because I lived on a road called Denzel Road. So everybody in the sound, probably barring two, were all from Denzel Road. We were called D-Road Posse. We had a sound called Phase One. And the first rap record I bought 
and not necessarily because I thought it was great, but I was just fascinated by it, was Sugar Hill Gang, like a lot of people. So I bought records. Like, I think that's about 1979, if I remember rightly, because I bought it on an independent label. It was orange, and it just said Sugar Hill Gang. I think Sugar Hill Records. So it didn't even have the famous logo, the Sylvia... Um, uh, yeah, Silver Robinson. I kind of, you know, the, the the logo was on it. It was blue, and then it had that snaky thing at the top. And she put out a whole bunch of records, but most of them really didn't work for me. And I didn't realize why they didn't work for me until I listened to Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons talking. And their whole point of making their records was to copy what they heard in the park or in the clubs that they went to, because Sugar Hill stuff was a band replaying stuff and then having somebody rhyme to that. And, it, and But as a kid, I didn't understand the dynamics of the sonics, and that's why they didn't resonate with me. Fast forward, as time goes on with those records, my problem was, and always up until I heard the record that changed everything for me, always was, I'm going to America and I see these people on the bus. So they're all talking about my girl, my car, my chain, this, that, and the other. But you're on the bus like me. So when I'm hanging out in the Frack City or Cross Bronx Expressway or anywhere like that, I see these people all the time. So they didn't have any money and... Not that there was anything wrong with it, but as a kid, I'm thinking, well, where's your money? Of course, we know now that even with MTV Cribs and stuff like that, they rent them and then they do it and then they go back to their house. Fast forward again. Um, can't remember the year, but it would have to be um, maybe 87, 88. And I'd go to a club called... Bentley's in East London and the DJ there was a pioneer of big time MCs now a lot of people can say well he wasn't really an MC doesn't matter I'm talking about somebody who laid groundwork historically without any shadow of a doubt Derek Reed, so aka Derek Bowie so Derek was a DJ before he was a rapper and got a business opportunity to make records, and he took it and ran with it. But what happened was Derek was a DJ, and every time he went in the club early, he would play certain records just to test them out. And I stood there, and I can remember it like it was yesterday. I told this story so many times, I'll never forget it. He put this record on, didn't know the beat, didn't know anything about it, first words that come out of that song is so clap your hands to what he's doing the beat came on okay nice beat and then the bass line played over in a much slower way was Fonda Ray's Over Like a Fat Rat I'm like okay and I love Fonda Ray Over Like a Fat Rat I really like it it's one of my like, all time favorites in my top one notice how I didn't say top head <laughs> so we don't need top tens. Too much hard work. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, this sounding all right. Now, bearing in mind, at this point in my life, my background was pretty much reggae, reggae, reggae. 
Although I played hip-hop, only the de- DJ techniques were what I was interested in. The records didn't interest me. They really didn't. It, because the MCs were saying nothing. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, this voice comes in. I came in the door. I said it before. I never let the mic magnetize me no more. But it's biting me, biting me, inviting me to rhyme. I can't hold it back. I'm All of a sudden, this voice comes in. And it says, I came in the door, I said it before, and never let the mic magnetize me no more. It just invited me, me, invited me to rhyme. I can't hold it back. I'm looking for the line. And I'm like, I'm standing on the dance floor with my mouth open like I've just seen a Chris girl. <laughs> like, what is this? Oh, my God. But then I wait a little bit longer because I'm thinking, all good things come to an end. At some point, this record's going to go whack. And it didn't. And the chorus came up to Eric B. Make him clap to this. And you know that I'm the solo whistle. So Eric B. Make him clap to this. I'm like, wow. Then the next chorus, the next verse comes in. I'm like, oh my God, this is it. This is my life. This is what I want to do. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew what I, I was like. I, this is what I want to do, but what's that? Because I don't rhyme. I do DJ, but I don't make records. At least not that, not very many. Um, and I'm like, wow. So the reason why it caught me was because this flow was very different to anybody else's. And it was the nearest I heard with an American accent to a Jamaican, because Jamaicans were much more cooler. And this was cool, slow flow. And although it was a lot more BPMs than a reggae record, but it was the nearest thing. And I'm like, whoa, this is it. And the next day I went out and just, I, I got it. I remember it, exactly a record label. Just, what a record. For the love of hip-hop, stories from the vault of the culture. So from there, that's that's when that's the record that pulled you in into the heavy into the culture. Yeah. What would be your next record when you when you say that's that's another one that's kind of that's a, a record I have to have and that's forming my career now? It's very hard because there's so many, but I will say that Three Feet High and Rising by Della Soul was pivotal because. Everything was hard beats and rhymes. And when they came along, it was the Daisy Age, Peace and Love, you know, the native tongues. And our very own Moni, who I've spoken to not too long ago when we were online after the Beanie Man about Killer Clash. And it's like, wow, this is... This is doable because Moni's doing it. Once again, I still don't know what I'm going to do, and I'm and I'm in it. I just don't realise I'm in it. I don't realise that as mastermind, as part of mastermind, we are influencing the whole country. There was pockets of hip hoppers everywhere, but it wasn't big like it is now. But we didn't know it was going to be like that. It was just, you know, we didn't see it as a business. It was like this is a hobby, and we're making money out of it. I had a job as a buyer for Lightning Records, and I for all their 12 so I bought all the vinyl for um, the company you mentioned um, Three Feet Feet High and Rising by De La Soul which 
would have been very very different from hip hop records which came before it. So what is it about that particular record which you say, yeah, this is one of my one 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 of my favorite hip hop records. What what why that record? And then we're, and I guess we'll talk about the album itself. It was the way it made people come together. Um, so it's the music that was non... The only way to describe it was non-threatening, I suppose, because it's in the same period of public enemy, etc. But everything about records from that period, so including Della Sol, including Big Daddy Kane, Eric B.M. Rackham, um, even Luke, anybody... Everybody was different. Now everything is like, got to sound like the other person. Well, I don't understand why, but that's, you know, I don't want to sound like the old man dissing young people because if that's what you like, that's what you like, fair enough. But for me, when I heard calling out samples, you know, I can't go for that. I was like, wow. You know, because I really like that record. Another record in my top 100. Um, I just thought, yeah, and you know, they sampled a whole load of different things. I think the very first record I bought from them was actually Potholes in My Lawn. Mm-hmm. And I think it sampled the Turtles. And poor old Dayla never really made any money off of that album because eventually they got sued because they didn't clear all the samples and there was no way around it. And I don't know if anybody saw it. I think it was last year. That whole thing with Tom Silverman where it was trying to get out of the publishing deal and he was not having it etc etc and for me just everything about that record it was like one of its tape um, it was one of those records you play from end to end skits and all and um, Buddy was another big record on there which featuring Moni Love yeah which they used Tanya Gardner Heartbeat Tanya Gardner Heartbeat um, the Kenton mix version was humongous. I think how the, that record became synonymous with you know, New York was, I believe, Larry Levan played the record over and over again at Paradise Garage, and I did actually get to meet Paradise Garage. Um, I did actually get to meet Larry Levan through Paul Oakenfeld when we competed in the New Music Seminar in '81 or '82. He, because Larry Levan was so influential, he played the record and refused to stop playing it for people dance. Fast forward, and it it has been replayed or sampled over and over again. Um, I think the last time I can remember it being done was with uh, Music Soul Child, and he did a record called Brady. But my thing, I think now you're asking me Carla the more I think about it and I break it down it's because it had so much samples it's not because and I'm talking about the three feet high and wide not because of the production and principle was great but what it is is that as a DJ I love hearing all those different sounds layered on top of one another like an orchestra and making one thing sometimes it's out of tune but just because it's out of tune doesn't mean it doesn't fit and I think that's what really made it the thing for me. Um, it was the samples, and you know, they're all great MCs. Even the DJs are good MCs.
recent date. Anyway, push couldn't shove me to understand a path to a basic. Consumers should erase it in a first wave. Cause second wave on believers and believers will walk to it, then even talk to it and say, Y'all can't have none of that. Tell them what to say, Mace. What to do when sucker lunatics start digging and chewing? They don't know that the soul don't go for that potholes in my lawn. And that goes for my rhyme sheet, which I concentrated so hard on. See, I don't ask for maximum security, but my dwelling is swelling. It lit my butt when I happened to fall into a spot where no ink or an ink block was on the scroll. I just wrote me a new mode, but now it's gone. Cause those suckers knew that I hate to recognize that every time I'm writing, it's gone. So the Mastermind sound system is credited with populating the dedicated hip-hop sound system. What else would you say was Mastermind's big influence on the early hip-hop culture in UK? And bearing in mind that you guys were global, you were you were ambassadors for UK hip-hop culture. Probably the biggest thing um, as Mastermind we contributed to was something called... Um, Street Sound Electro. So we did all the mixes to start with. Uh, I don't even know how many they did, but we did at least the first five, and then we was off it, and they put somebody else on it, and then we got brought back in to do them. I guess with the electro thing, there's two different things. There's a bunch of things going on because you've got the break dancing, then you've got the popping. You know, um, and I thought there's another name for that as well. Anyway, I was never a, a big pop fan. I was always into breakdancing. Breakdancing went with hip hop, and the, the popping was more with the whole electric boogaloo style. Yeah, um, and the electro albums, I guess it was the moniker that they used, but it did have hip hop on it. So we would get. A list from Morgan saying these are the records that we're putting out and you put these together in a mix and then you're given a certain amount of money and a certain amount of time to get it done it was really it was Herbie and Max over most of it because I guess egos got in the way time creations and so on we all benefited from you know doing it because what would happen is you'd then be allowed to go into certain clubs just because you're standing next to the man who is the man Dave, you and I speak very often, and one thing uh, which has stood out in our conversation is the Madonna story. And I understand that while you were um, part of Mastermind, being ambassadors, global ambassadors for UK hip-hop culture, that you encountered a young Madonna um, when she was very much part of the New York uh, clubbing scene. Could you tell us a bit more about that? The Madonna story was we were in the US, so I think we were in New York, Manhattan to be precise, for the World DJ Championships run by Tommy Boy Records. And I'm trying to remember what it was called. I, I can't remember, but at that point when we was doing it, it was so new. We were the first English people to ever do it. 
Um, I think we were up against Filey Jetting Off the Funk. So he was in a team called the Hot Mix Five, but for whatever reason, they didn't turn up. So it was just it was four of us against him one, and he murdered us. Just him one. Uh, me, Herbie, uh, Max, and Bert, I think it was. So Herbie was the head person for Mastermind at the time. Sorry, actually, that's not true. We had eight turntables, and he had two. Uh, but we worked off of what we what our understanding was when the truth was it was nothing like that. You see how complex how you know the team sport of DJing is is very different to what we thought, and so we was always going to get knocked out. But it was a great experience. But um, yeah. Um, Paul Oakenfeld was the one who organised it because Paul had been living in Boston discovered hip hop came back to the UK and was looking around for somebody who represented hip hop in the UK and found mastermind because I guess our names had come up over and over again he said well I can organise for you to be in the battle for free because you have to pay to be in it so I can organise that but you're going to have to organise your own flights and your own accommodation which we did and then Paul knew everybody so he took us around so we met Jelly Bean Benitez. We met Larry Levan. We went and saw Trouble Funk. You know, we went to the Fun House, and that's where the four of us—sorry, five of us—got to hang out with Madonna. I can't even say hanging out. We—it was like it was Bam, Madonna, Houdini, and I think Flash was there as well. And we were just standing together because I, we didn't know. Madonna, she had just released, I think it was Lucky Star. No, she was literally on the verge. And my record that I liked by her really was Everybody. That was the one that was being played in the States, whereas I think Lucky Star was being played in the UK or Holiday, I can't remember. But Everybody was my record because you used to hear it on BLS and Kiss all the time. And still is my favourite after getting the group. Um, but we went around to all these different places, all introduced us to all these different people. It was a really, really good uh, experience. Um, I cannot, you know, thank Paul enough because Paul set us all up. Not everybody's still DJ, not everybody's still in the business, but without him, you know, for me personally, I wouldn't have got this far. You've chosen so far. You've gone uh, Eric Rakim uh, from Eric Bing and Rakim, De La Soul, the Three Foot High and Rising album, and Jay-Z's Beyond All Reasonable Doubt. What would be, say, the fourth record which you go hip hop for me? Um, I'm going to be a little bit left of centre with that. It's not records in this case. It's producer, two producers. Um, the two producers are DJ Premier and Pete Rock. Now Pete Rock. Um, he did a remix that just changed everything and that remix was Public Enemy Shut Down Check one, hit the deck, let the man of the hour commit the soul power. For one 
So not to say shut him down on a regular Cause a mass hysteria In the area Kicking it for my man Chuck D Gary P.E. on the remix Kind of hold the flick So check it Before I step down When you hear the original Which is more like a rock record And then you hear Pete Rock's version And you're like wow And also At that point P.E. were just on the verge of If they don't get this right They could be played out But because Pete Rock rhymed on the record It gave it a new sense of audio dynamics Because he did a different way of rapping to Chuck D And you'd never think it would work Because their styles are so different Their voices are so different There's no two ways about it The most powerful voice in hip-hop Is, without any shadow of a doubt On a record, it's Chuck D I've never heard anybody as powerful can't, you know, as soon as he opens his mouth, you know it's him. Sorry, going from three feet high and rising to my, uh, I think my album, probably my all-time favourite, definitely in my top ten, definitely. Officially, Davey J saying, in my top ten, um, Jay-Z's Reasonable Doubt. That has got to be... I mean, I play that album over and I've owned it all in different ways. I've owned it on CDs, cassettes, vinyl, you know, downloaded it, whatever. It's just... He, to me, he's one of the greatest wordplay um, MCs ever. He just... You know, if, if you don't follow him, you won't understand the political rantings that he says because he's very subliminal. Um... And I've seen videos when he's talking about his technique of um, rhyming or how he writes, and it's it, he doesn't write things down. Yes, and I believe neither did Biggie or Tupac. Now, Biggie didn't write anything down because, um, as the story goes, Clark Kent is the producer of that song on Reasonable Down. And Biggie wasn't supposed to be on that song, but because uh, they'd already recorded it. But Clark was saying, "Look, you need this guy. You need this guy." And he was known, as in Biggie was known. But I don't think at that point they were friends. And Clark got Biggie to come in, and when he saw Jay go in and do. His part, he was like, well, Wiz, your book was from that. I don't write anything down. I, I could be wrong, but I think that's how it went. And then after that, Biggie just started doing the same thing. I think you have to train yourself to do that. You know, I don't know how you do it, but you train yourself to do that. And, you know, with, with, with Jay-Z, forget all the other things he does, you know, because that's just unbelievable. I think he's paved the way for anybody in any business to say I don't have to do one thing but as a rapper for me his wordplay is just crazy and that's why I like him so much it's not just about subliminals it's about saying stuff in a clever way and doesn't always do it in the way that you think he's going to because you've got you know your wordplay your cadence your rhyming your, your triplets couplets etc and you only understand that from listening over and over again it's like listening to to Rakim or T.I. or Jada Kiss 
In fact, any of the locks. So, you know, Sheik as well. Um, yeah, they just... I, I like wordplay. And I think that's why I was drawn towards the reggae MCs and then to the American MCs. And bearing in mind that the whole hip-hop thing was born um, out of Cool Herc, who came from a reggae background. And then it got developed into this, this multi-billion pound industry that we know today. So the other person, as I mentioned, is DJ Premier. So I started off with... Uh, let's think. I think I started off with them when... I think they were on Wild Picture for a little while. And... First album was Step in the Arena, but eventually, when they started to go their separate ways, now I was not a big fan of Guru um, and the Jazzmatized stuff. I think he's got a great voice and great style, but I'm one of those people I'm, I don't like going with the grain, so I always go against the grain. I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. So I've come to appreciate him more um, when I've gone out my own way with my stubborn stupidity just because I don't like it because everybody else does. But for me, <clears throat> That bouncy boom bap sound, you know that, which is definitely a, a New York type of uh, a version of hip hop. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, then sometimes he, he, he would do records that you just like to notice. From there. One of the biggest ones ever. Sorry, two of the biggest ones ever. I remember being in New York and this record that had the drop, the, the water drop sound on it. And I'm like. Oh, because as soon as the beat comes in, because when, when the, the, the drops come in, once you know the record, you know. But at the time, I didn't know what it was. It only comes in for a couple of seconds, and the beat comes in. And it was Jay Rue, the damager. And that was the record, Come Clean. Oh, 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 oh. You have to be in somewhere like New York to witness what it does. You know, I've seen it so many times in the UK. But when you are in the States and you're watching certain records be born as as seminal records in that period, in that area. You wanna avoid jump up and get bumped. If you're feeling lucky, duck, then press your luck. I snatch fake gangster MCs and make them fake. I slam bang, you're nine spray. My mind spray. Malignant mist that'll leave caught default. The results, your remains.
another record was Biggie's Unbelievable. In fact, that, just that whole album. You know, the Ready to Die album. Jesus. It's like, as soon as I heard it, the whole album was like, wow. And the reason why I, I mentioned Unbelievable is because that was produced by Primo. Once again, a lot of people didn't realise it was Primo that did it. But you can tell he's doing the scratching because he has a style. Doesn't necessarily make him the best or the worst, but he has a style. He does rhythmic patterns. Unlike anybody else, there's nobody that scratches like him. Uh, it's uncomplicated. Anybody can copy it. But I guess out of respect, people don't. And most turntables want to be overly complicated. There's no need for it. <laughs> And I remember hearing the scratches from R. Kelly's Unbelievable. But at the time, I'm not really taking it in there. It's an R. Kelly record. I can just hear the words being scratched. I was like, oh my God, he's making R. Kelly, you know, even more hip hop than he was at the time. Mm -hmm. And of course, that album had The What, which is probably my favourite track in which is him and Mess. Mess, voice-wise, is one of my favourite MCs. Doesn't always do it right, although he does for me right now say he's one of the best that's I don't even say I'm a comeback I'm just like nothing man um, in the in the Wu-Tang I think M-E-T-H-O-D man I was once again I was in the States love that record I think most most of my big record finding or game changing finding records were always in the States so you used to do a lot of travelling to the States so either do interviews um, or play or whatever. But while I'm there, you always run to the record companies and try and pick up some new product. So you must have some interesting stories about um, going to the States. So hearing certain clubs, certain records in clubs. So uh, one of my favourite hip-hop records is The Headbanger by Eric Sermon. But yeah. I'd imagine hearing that in a the, in the New York club would just be very different from hearing it subterranean or borderline. You know what? I can't even remember him in a club. Because at that point, I think most of my record company things were record company things. So it's not the same as going to a club. Um, I think I, I will say. Actually, you know what? No, no, I think about it. You know, I heard it at um, the tunnel. I think I heard it at the tunnel. So I did go to the tunnel, went there a lot. It was. <laughs> It was a very dangerous place to go to. It was um, Funkmaster Flex's night, him and Big Cat. Um, and I think there was another DJ coming his name. Cypher Sounds, Cypher Sounds as well. I think Cypher took over from Big Cat because Big Cat was always late. And Cypher is a much better DJ than Big Cat. Um, RIP to Big Cat, by the way. We went to the tunnel. I remember that night there was oh, Wu Tang was there. I think Onyx were there. I'm trying to remember who else. There were so many people. It was unbelievable. It's a bit like us going to Subterranean. All the heads were there. But when the records came on, it was like, wow. You're just in hip-hop heaven. At least to me, I was. Because it's all the records I know. And I'm an English person. And these people don't realise I'm an English person. I know all these records. Um... The scary thing about going there, okay, so picture this, you get to the door, and I remember this one time, get to the door, and the bouncer shouts out, 
if you've got anything, you know, put it in the basket. And if you get through and we find you, we're going to beat your ass and put you outside. What he meant was no razors, no guns, no knives. Leave them outside. And when you went to the toilet, you had to have somebody watch your back. So in this case, when my boy went to pee, I stand there, not like too much. Um, and when I went for a pee, he had to stand there making sure nobody would come and rob him while he takes the leave. Because, as you know, men are very vulnerable when they take him a pee. I think the most challenging thing visually about that club was when you're walking in, you're actually walking through a metal detector like you're getting on a plane. And I'm like, really? But, yeah, that's how it was. But I had the most incredible time. For the love of hip-hop, stories from the vault of the culture. So it was always about, while we were at KISS, hooking up with artists, the management, the DJs, promoters, etc., so you could get things um, first, get interviews first, get exclusives, because that enhanced your credibility. But there were a couple of times when a rival DJ who really has no understanding, in my opinion, even to this day, of the culture. We had Numbers, which was that choice, 279. Yeah. And I think at the time, Westwood was on... Was he on Radio 1 at that time? Well, he switched from Capital Week. When we started at Kiss, he was on... Friday night. He was on, he was on Capital. Yeah. He was supposed to come to Kiss, but at the, the 11th hour, he changed his mind, and then he ended up going to Radio 1. What would you say the differences were between the three shows? Well, we were friendly with 279. We were about the culture. At least me and Steve were. I can't speak for Max, and I can't speak for Westwood. Having many conversations with 279 over the years, and we're still friends, um, he was about being the best he could be for that culture. And it wasn't about cultivating the culture. We were part of it. So we are in it. So we lived it. So we didn't have to try to, you know, be fake with it. This was how it was every single day. And, you know, people fit into the puzzle of the culture. Some people can do all of it. And depending on your age group and depending on your understanding, you may see the culture differently. Now, for me... There can be five or six elements of hip-hop. At one point, there was only four, but evolution says that there can be more. So the main ones are the breaking, the DJing, the b-boying, which is the dancing, and the MCing. But then there's the other element, which is the knowledge. So you have to understand you know about being kind and etc and all this kind of thing it's I guess um, I don't really know too much about it because that was never my thing but because I in myself I think I was raised okay so I didn't necessarily have to have that um, it's like like an an etiquette a way of carrying yeah depending on where you I mean there's there's others parts that go into it so you've got five percenters which is people like Rakim so that they believe that they are the chosen ones they are the gods and they teach certain lessons to other people and so on um, I believe it's based on Islam I don't really know too much about it but I was around enough people to kind of get a sense of it but then the other part of that as well um, 
and I believe it should be included in is fashion because everything um, runs via fashion as well as the music so the, the biggest things are going to be the music and the fashion I'll go back to the whole Westwood 279 Dave and Max thing so in those days the teams were Max and Dave it was Westwood it was 279 what I realised for me and Tim may say differently I don't think he understands and maybe he doesn't have but at the time there's no understanding of the culture he was there in my opinion for self and when I say that I mean that when myself and Max and 279 we were rivals on air but when we went out to gigs uh, we would hang out with one another you know we would talk about the music we'd have drinks together etc Westwood was a bit like how Keras one would say I'm number one two three four and five there was no room for anybody else that was how Westwood was and a couple of times you, I realised later on in life that my thoughts of Westwood how I saw him are to be true so for instance um, when I when we played a record I can't remember the record but we played a record by uh, Rakim and Westwood phoned up and said that he wanted oh I know what it was it was Misha Paris and Rakim featured on the record I can't remember where we got it from but we got it as an exclusive I think it was our very first or second show and Westwood complained because he wanted us to not play it because he didn't play it first um, and then years later I remember finding out that we had played I think it was the second Pete Rock and CL Smooth album before Westwood and he lost the plot and phoned Electra in New York to our friend. I won't name her because I'm still friends with her now. And she still works for the label. In fact, she works for a different label, but she still works in the business. Um, he called her and said, you've got to get them to stop playing it because I need to be playing it because I'm bigger, this, that, and the other, or whatever, I don't know. But she admitted to me years later that it was a call from him that prompted her to tell us that we shouldn't play it, which of course never listened to them because they don't make these records. Um, it's the fans that made those records because hip hop wasn't big like it is now at that point. So it was always about finding what we felt was the best records, playing them, and not just playing them first, but supporting them. Um, so another couple of points in case. Uh, House of Pain jump around eventually it came out on Richard Vassell's label Excel for those of you who don't know Excel um, they're Adele's label yeah so what happened was we got a cassette we didn't even have vinyl at the time we got a cassette of House of Pain jump around and I just thought this is a massive record and it got to number one in the charts it fell down, but I promised myself, I was like, look, we're going to keep playing this record until somebody puts it out because it's such a massive record. It's going to be a hit. We just have to keep playing it. So we did. So we must have played it for about three or four months continually. Um, get to the end of the um, the deal with Richard Russell, and he sent a message to Lindsay. And Lindsay came up to me and Max said, and what are you doing at the weekend? I said, nothing. I said, right, get your passports. XL want to um, show their love for you supporting the record. And you're on a plane to Ireland for the weekend to go and see House of Pain in Ireland. If you 
Dave, so for your time DJing and presenting on radio, is there anyone who surprised you about their love and passion and knowledge for hip hop? I'm sure there was plenty, but I will take one person who I don't know. I met them once, but it was an eye opener. And that was, uh, I can't even remember her name, the lead singer from Texas. Shari Patiri. I remember that. When she lost Yes. So I made a call to somebody I knew that knew her management and said, can we get her on the show? Because I've heard that she likes hip hop. The coincidence was that Say What You Want happened to come around at the same time. So we was really lucky. But the person did sort it out. And when I spoke to them, I think I'd sent an email, so pass this email on and say, look, um, you can bring anything you want, but try to bring radio version. So she bought a stack of 10 CDs. And when we went to talk to her, I was like, oh my God, this woman really knows her stuff. Because, well, just from the CDs. But it turned out that at the time, I don't know if they're still together, but her boyfriend, I don't know, husband or whoever he was at the time, was the editor of Face magazine. He was a massive, massive, massive hip hop. Yeah, he was, he was really When she turned up, she had the Ready to Die album. She had um, the um, Reflection Eternal album, you know, um, Talib Kweli of Most Death, or in this case, Yasin Bayna, and so on. She just had a whole load of top shelf hip hop. And that made her, for me, at least in those moments, legit. Very good interview, just in the form of uh, representing herself. And she knew a lot more than I expected. Sure, there's other people, but that's, you know, the ones I can remember. For the love of hip hop. Is there any one object that best symbolises hip-hop? Yeah, Tim's. Tim's, definitely Tim's. I remember when I thought about buying my first pair of Tim's, and I was like, oh my God, I can't afford that. It was so much money. And the biggest part about Tim's for me was I, I was like, it's not going to last. And they are a staple part of hip-hop. Bag your skinny jeans, they have gone all the way through. You know, um, gazelles, um Gooses, all of those, Helly Hansen, all those things have come and gone. But Tim's are, you know, they've become a staple diet. And I was blessed at one point to be um, sponsored by them. It was just, can you imagine walking in and woman goes, you can have whatever you want. Love the plot. Final thoughts. Is there any one moment that best summarises your experience of falling in love with hip-hop? 
there, there is no two ways. There is nothing right now that I can think of that was bigger than that moment when Derek B played uh, B president by nothing. That was a game changer for me in terms of listening to lyrics, getting into the hip hop culture and understanding my place in the world at that time, which to some extent still has a part, it played a part in, in even me speaking to you now. A part in hip hop is very, very different. But it's still, you know, I, I may not be as prominent, but I still consider myself to be a hip-hopper. I think like a hip-hopper, you know, my whole life is, is hip-hop. It's a bit like being Jewish or Methodist or Moravian. Just because you don't always go to church doesn't mean that it's not your religion, it still is. You know, but you just don't practice all of it. And then every now and again you do. And it's contributed to the making of me. So I, will, I will always, always, always be a hit. I never let the mic magnetize me no more, but it's biting me, fighting me, inviting me to rhyme. I can't hold it back. I'm looking for the line, taking off my coat, clearing my throat. The rhyme will be kicking in till I hit my last note. My mind remains a fine, all kind of idea. Self-esteem makes it seem like a thought took years to build, but still say a rhyme after the next one. Prepared, never scared, I'll just press one. And you know that I'm the solo whistle. so Eric B, make a clap to this. That's it for now. Thank you for listening to the podcast version of For the Love of Hip Hop. For rights reasons, the music is restricted. If you wish to hear an extended version of this interview, including stories about the Fugees, falling out with record companies, more on the rivalry between club DJs and radio presenters, breaking hip hop records into the charts, and more music, please head to Mixcloud, find the moniker For the Love of Hip Hop. And for a small subscription fee, you'll be able to regularly get extended bonus editions of the show. If you just prefer to listen to the podcast version for free, cool. Please do subscribe, like, and share, and review. It all helps to build the show, to get recognition, and to produce more content. Bye for now.